through. Nobody should touch it. Well, why not miss it though? Look, it, it's a great point. Off the I, I, I would. I've coached my guys to miss it. But now go, don't touch it. They, now, now you're not set up. At the buzzer, McCord on its way. Oh, Well, that was easily the coolest highlight we ever played for a basket that got waved. <laughs> yeah. And watch, you you told me that I hadn't seen it, but you told me that and I watched it. It almost looked like the clock stutters or something. Like, it looks like it would have been clearly late, and then they waved it off. So and They got it right. I, I don't know what the standard is in college basketball, if it's the same as in football where it, there needs to be indisputable visual evidence. I didn't think there was that. Um when you're watching it in TV because it's when the buzzer goes off, the ball is rolling off his fingers and it's really hard to see whether the ball is touching his fingers. Now, when you see a still frame from behind him or in front of him, I guess in this case, you can see that the ball is still touching his fingers and the, the backboard behind him is lit up. Oh, okay. So they got the call, right? I'm not sure that there was conclusive video evidence of it. Um, I don't know if they're looking at still frames down there, or how close they could get, what the slow motion capabilities were. So I'm not going to judge it, but um, they they got it right. I, it does kind of open the like debate of do we want to be that precise that you almost can't celebrate those things anymore because... Are you going to get to hockey in three things about the manager meetings, or, or is now the time to talk about that? No, I'd jump in now. Uh, I guess they... Or one last thing. ...are happy with the way it's going, and in addition to that, for the playoffs, they're going to add blue line cameras. So for those reviews, yeah. we'll just have another angle. God, they're stupid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look at... We, we flipped out last week about... We even got a guest about Pat Kane and the SI story. That was gone quicker than it was here. I mean, sometimes it blows my mind how quickly the oh, news cycle yeah, works. Sure. I mean, that was like a 10-hour story. Uh, anyway, it is uh, Season 6, Episode 9 of the Sportscasters. Austin 316 That's right. day in the month of 316. Right, It's the one and only March of 2016. That is true. So it's 316, 316 or something. Right, right, yeah. Uh, let's see. What do we got today? Two debuts. Tim Kewen. It's spelled K-E-O-W-N, and I promise you I thought of 30 different ways to say this name. <laughs> I was like, I better ask him, and it's Kewen. So they should probably spell it Q-I-N. But it's Q-I-N? Spelled, <laughs> but it's spelled K-E-O-W-N. <laughs> Uh, he is a writer for ESPN the magazine. He's been there since 1999. Wow! Writing. Wow! Yeah, and he has an awesome piece that's been floating around about Bryce Harper, who's often been a topic on this podcast. He's uh he's one of those things like the Royals and the BCS and I don't know things that we've talked about 
since the infancy of the podcast, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, remember we had uh, Rob Mish's book, The Last Natural. Okay, yeah. Which is about the year that Bryce spent in junior college. Well, Tim Hewen, uh has a piece about Bryce talking about the old rules of baseball and how they're stunting the growth and popularity of the game. And uh, we'll talk to Tim about that, and we'll talk to him about writing for ESPN the magazine. Also, Kevin Armstrong writes for the New York Daily News. I don't know if we've ever had a current New York Daily News writer. I know we've had the New York Times. I don't know if we've had the New York Daily News. We've also had Newsday. Uh, But Kevin wrote an article about the gyms where high school and youth basketball is played in Brooklyn uh, because the NCAA tournament will debut in Brooklyn this year at Barclays for the first time. And he took a really cool approach just kind of writing about yeah, this tournament is being played in Brooklyn at Barclays, but so many great players who played in the tournament have come from Brooklyn, and they played in these unique gyms. Um, it's a really cool piece, and Kevin talks to us about that. So two cool debuts. Uh, we have a new book in the book club. We'll finish with one last thing, and we'll get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. Alrighty, I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever! (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. So the NCAA tournament starts tomorrow... Uh, today, probably by the time yeah, you're round, listening to this, round one. Yeah, Thursday. The pretend round one. The pretend round one is already half over. Right. We'll finish that tonight. So it started. And the game it's will start. Started. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, President Obama chose the Kansas Jayhawks in his final bracketology. They can't be going that deep. Right? And you know, now they're the number one overall seed. Okay. Uh, so. But you know, it's interesting. We, we won't get too political, but. You know Hillary Clinton isn't doing this next year, <laughs> right? And yeah. they probably will be now. They George, won't want to ask Trump to do it, right? Did and George, Bush didn't do it. He did not. Now I, Bush was a sports guy, and he got he was some baseball. He got some oh, run yeah. with baseball on ESPN. Okay, I know, mean before he became extremely unpopular. Obama was a big, is a big basketball guy. Like yes. that was his. Yes, made that's sense. His thing, right? Sure, and he's been great at it. Yeah. I've I've enjoyed him very much. As someone who doesn't always enjoy him politically, although I don't dislike him as much as extreme. Cons- I'm not an extreme conservative, I'm, right? Right. Uh, so I'm not that kind. Of, I'm not questioning his birth certificate or something like that. <laughs> uh, but I do absolutely enjoy watching him do that. Um, a couple things about the tournament I wanted to go over. One, uh, did you know that Saint Bonaventure is That's maybe the biggest snubbed. snub of all time? The I highest. Hear that. The highest RPI conference champion and not make the tournament. And I heard Syracuse is one of the teams that did get in. Yes. And kind of said, like, yeah, we didn't think we were getting in. Right. So. Uh, it seemed like this year, the committee, it was about big wins. Right? Duke got in, beca- or uh, Syracuse got in because they beat Duke. Um, and that's okay, except for with this tournament, when you have a different committee every year, they value different things. So the target moves. Right, some year, the way to get in is to avoid bad losses. Some year, some years, the way to get in is to be 
good on the road. You know, some years it's to be good in your conference. You know, this year maybe the committee valued big wins. That's that's ridiculous. The there's got they got to figure out a way. I mean, why not just maybe do the same committee? I don't know something. That's the big some way for every year to know what this committee is going to value. I mean, how many losses did Kansas have off the top of your head? Kansas six. Okay, so what my point is there is like even the best of the best team loses because they play a lot of games and this isn't yeah. football. And you play away so, games. So really, like a win over the twentieth ranked team gets Syracuse in over St. Bonaventure. That seems a little weak. That's uh, yeah, that's something they valued this year for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, and that that stinks again. I mean. Then you look at well St. Bonaventure. Their culpability is they have an eleven point lead with like four minutes left in the semifinals of their conference tournament. Right, just just handle. They don't win that game, and maybe if they win that one, even if they lose the next day in the conference final, that was enough to get them. You know, maybe that that loss to Davidson, who was the eleven seed in their tournament, um, put them out. UB uh, is in again, so we do have some Buffalo representation. It means game. nothing here, really, I don't think. They play the U. No, it's kind of cool because there's no good – well, it's not that there's no good basketball teams around just in the – for a larger city, I guess. There's none. But uh, Until they put Buffalo on their jerseys, I'm not going to be too passionate about that. No, I don't I don't care really either. Yeah, it's, I mean, it says New My York. My sister went to school there, cheered there, so I was – It was more fun, fun last, last year. year. Yeah, yeah. I, I was into it, and they played well. What's cool for them is that – Everyone thought when the coach left, Hurley left, and one of the players that left he was too. taking, you know, the new winning part yeah. of the program out, and they bounced back. I want to say, like, I, I mean, it shows how much I pay attention. Uh, one of their bigger players left when the coach left. Yes. Too, so, yep. And he mentioned it. He, the, if you want to find uh, the new UB coach talking to the team, there's a cool video, and he, he thanks those who stayed with him. So, yeah. Uh, will you watch the NCAA tournament this weekend? Will it be next weekend? Will it be ever? No, it's kind of like, you, you know what? If it's on, it's one of those things that's on all over the place because there's so many games. So I'll probably catch some of it. To watch a game end-to-end, that would probably only happen for the finals. Um, You don't ever regret, like let's say at 435, I called you and said the number 15 seed just beat a number two seed on a buzzer beater and you were at home watching a rerun of cops (laughs) that doesn't make you say man i wish i would have maybe checked in to see the end of these games yeah that's cool i you know what it's one of those things i'm not a basketball guy so i i I don't understand it enough and there's so much scoring and so many lead changes and like i'm used to games like i grew up playing soccer which is low scoring and you have to work really hard to score and hockey which is low scoring yeah so something about it, like I think we've watched games before, and like it'll be two nothing. I'll be like, oh, that's gonna hold up. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, even eleven point leads and right, four minutes left, right. like the Metro had, don't hold up. So I mean, that that is exciting, but yeah, I've, I've just never been a basketball guy. Will you fill out a bracket? I didn't. I think it's too late. You still right? can. I nobody, don't need to fill in those nobody, first ones. No, no, people don't do that because you just wouldn't have enough time. Okay, you so don't you just really pick have the Monday at work. Seed against the one or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually I do. Maybe I will. Why not? Because you can win a million dollars for free brackets on some sites, right? Right. So. Um, do you have a who will you pick to win if you do it? <laughs> I don't know. I might read an article before I fill it out and then try to be clever. But well, it's one of these years where a lot of teams have a chance. Oh yeah. Um, 
you know, it's considered open, open field. Maybe 15 teams could get to the Final Four, as many experts are saying. Wow. Experts beyond us are saying maybe four, 15 teams that they could see in the Final Four. That's pretty deep. And a year like that makes it possible that someone off the board could squeak into. Sure. You know, when you got 15 teams that you think could make it, that means they're, they're vulnerable. Right. You know, so. Uh, well, we'll be following that the next few weeks. Absolutely. If Oklahoma wins this week, I think next week I'm going to get uh, our friend from the Oklahoma paper we had for football on. Does your buddy get into this? Is he oh, Oklahoma? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, bit huge. No matter what. Oh, yeah. Got it. Um, new thing that happened today, number two. Did you hear about this? It broke late. Adam LaRoche retired from baseball today. And he retired because the White Sox asked him to not bring his kid to work every day. So let me, let me read you some of this. This is from Deadspin. Okay. Uh, on Tuesday, Chicago White Sox first baseman Adam Roach announced, much to the release of White Sox fans, that he would retire from baseball. He, it's like making $13 million a year, and he's hitting like 200 last year. Yeah, I just brought up his name in Google. He's 36, and he's making $12 million yeah. a year. Yep. Uh, it now appears that his decision was related less to his inability to hit at the major league level, but that his 14-year-old son Drake, according to Ken Rosenthal... Uh, was asked to not be in the clubhouse by the team president, Kenny Williams, every damn day. <laughs> um, uh, the tweet from La- uh, Rosenthal says, Sources, LaRoche chose to retire after White Sox press. Ken Williams told him he could no longer bring 14-year-old son to the clubhouse. Um, that s- responded a response, or that triggered a response sure. from the president. There's been no policy change with regard to the allowance of kids in the clubhouse, on the field, the backfields during spring training. This young man that we're talking about, Drake, everyone loves this young man. In no way do I want this to be about him. I asked Adam, said, listen, our focus, our interest, our desire this year is to make sure we give ourselves every opportunity to focus on a daily basis on getting better. All I'm asking you to do with regard to bringing your kid to the ballpark is dial it back. I don't think you should be here 100% of the time, and he has been here 100% every day in the clubhouse. I said that I don't even think you should be here 50% of the time. Figure it out somewhere in between. We all think this kid is a great young man. I just felt it should be not every day. That's all. You tell me where in this country can you bring your child to work every day. Uh, his brother Andy supported his decision. He tweeted out, takes a hell of a man to step away from the game. He loves or what he believes in. Uh, interestingly enough, the Chicago Tribune last year wrote an article about Drake and called him the 26th man on the team. In a uh, positive way. Yeah, in a positive way. Now, I don't mean to assume this or anything like that, but he's not a special needs kid or anything, is he? I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, no one quoted seemed to have a problem with the kid then. Um, although, given dad's status as a friend... Now, this is... Dad's been talking here. Sure. No one quoted seemed to have a problem with the kid then. Although, given dad's status as a friend of the Duck Dynasty crew... Okay. And the family's penchant for posing with high-grade weaponry. So they're gonna make this political. That may have mainly, that may have been mainly out of fear. They're saying that maybe because they're conservatives, people wouldn't speak out if they didn't like them there. I don't know where that's <laughs> been going with that. Yeah, that's a little bit far. It's a stretch. I know people with they're guns, not gonna not afraid of the Gauzer. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, Here's, uh, I guess, an excerpt from the Chicago Tribune article last year. 
Before game, shagging balls is Jake's favorite activity, as he keeps track of consecutive five balls caught, trying to break his record at 24. Hangs out in the Sox video room during games and run errands like grabbing water or sunflower seeds. LaRoach doesn't feel like he needs to keep tabs on his son at all times, but said he's expected to earn his keep. He knows if he's going to be a part of it, he needs to stay out of the way when guys are working and to help when he can. I agree with everything. So where do you stand? I agree with everything you said there. I suppose it does seem a tad presumptuous that like my kid's just going to be here. And I told you I looked up his, just Googled his name, got his salary, his age, and all that. And underneath it, it says spouse. And if you click on his spouse, I ended up at playerwives.com. I've never heard of this website. I, I assume it's about player wives and not from player wives perspectives. But uh, under his wife, I see here, this has been an ongoing thing. This is why I bring this up. But it says, for the 2013 spring training with the Washington Nationals, Adam and Jennifer, his wife, allowed son Drake to join his father's spring training. When questioned about whether or not his son should be in school, Adam replied with, we're not big on school. I told my wife he's going to learn a lot more useful information in the clubhouse (laughs) than he will in the classroom as far as life lessons. (laughs) I've never so heard look, parents say we're not big on squad. Well, yeah, that. I mean, that's, that's, that's where, where I politics think, might get in. That's where we part ways a little bit. Yeah. I, I think there, when you're going to take your kid out of school, granted, like everything they learn in school, I'm not using now that I'm out of school. But <laughs> I wouldn't. Kids' jobs is to go to school. I wouldn't. That's your right, job as a kid. Right. I wouldn't right. go so far as to take right. him out saying he's going to learn more in the clubhouse than in the classroom. So Molly Knight, who wrote a book we loved yeah. about the Dodgers last year, tweeted that. She promises if anyone from the White so- or from the Dodgers brought their kid to the clubhouse every year, all twenty-four players would have complained to her off the record. Then one of the Dodgers replied to her and said, "Well, what if it was Kershaw's kid?" And she replied back and said, "Well, yeah. Well, if you are one of the best players of all time, maybe if you want your kid to play second base, they'll do that." Sounds like Adam LaRoche so that's, is not that. So though. now I ask you. Do you Should that think, matter? Does that matter? Is that play? Uh, would the Red, would the White Sox have done this with, say, Frank Thomas and Frank Thomas's kid when Frank Thomas was in their prime? Were they maybe try? Did they know that they he might retire, run him off, and use this as a way to save thirteen million bucks? Or is that doing what Deadspin did and kind of make it draw an assumption? Yeah. yeah, I mean, can't you just cut a guy? Or are baseball contracts guaranteed? Oh, it's guaranteed. guaranteed. Absolutely. Okay, it's only football, really. It's not yeah. guaranteed, right? Uh, maybe there is some of that. I mean, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that if he was the best player on a team, they wouldn't just look the other way. I mean, Barry Bonds had two lockers with a TV in one or whatever. Like, right. He, uh, special players. Special privileges special for special treatment. players. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure that's a thing. I'm sure they're not heartbroken. Like you said, the fans are probably happy that this happened. All right, one last thing for today. Don, have you been following the Gawker Hulk Hogan trial at all? No. Well, if you did, you might have noticed like, that one of the named defendants is a former sportscaster's guest. So real trial, not like a trial. Oh, you don't know anything about opinion. this no, at all? No, I don't think so. I imagine Sometimes a, I wonder if Diamond lives under, under a rock when he lives here. I honestly do. You know what? I look at. I always look at the trending on Facebook. It must not have made it there. I mean, this has been everywhere. Howard really? Stern, uh, all over my Facebook. Uh, uh, here's an article from The Hollywood Reporter, <laughs> who's covering this. Uh, the Gawker <laughs> Trial. It's about the video uh, and the article that Gawker ran. Uh, with Hulk Hogan having sex with Bud, Bubba the Love Sponge's wife. 
Okay, I had. And Hulk that, Hogan yeah. is suing them for one hundred million dollars for now, libel or whatever. Now, if he wins, slander, he'll bankrupt them because the law of appeal there says if they appeal, they need to put the judgment in escrow, and they don't even have the judgment. So it's pretty much down to this case because they wow. they really won't be in a position to appeal unless they come up with a hundred million dollars cash. Um, so but to back up a step, one of the named. Defendants in the Hulk Hogan versus Gawker trial is former two-time sportscasters guest AJ Delirio. Really? Yeah, AJ Delirio was the editor of Deadspin when he first joined us. Yeah, and he left that position to move up to be the editor of Gawker. Okay. Deadspin was like a smaller site under Gawker. Right. You know, so he went up to the main site, and he's the one who posted this. And the article I have up from The Hollywood Reporter focuses on his testimony and cross-examination. Wow. So on Monday, Delirio is the first person called to the witness stand by Gawker in a seeming effort, and again, this is from The Hollywood Reporter, in a seeming effort to establish that great care was taken before posting the video. He was also asked about his young children remark uh, earlier in the trial. Siri is just talking and interrupting the podcast. <laughs> Who knows why? Uh, earlier in the trial, it was uh, a deposition that Delirio gave uh, where someone asked him, when is a celebrity sex tape not newsworthy? And he said, when it was with children. And they said, how old? And he said, four. But he was being flippant because... Sure. He, I mean, obviously, they knew what he meant when he said children. Right. There's not a cutoff. Right. Children. Yep. Right. Uh, so he was asked about that. Uh, where would he draw the line in running sex tapes for those featuring children under four? Uh, oh, they even use the word flippant here. The flippant remark uh, <laughs> garnered enough media buzz that Hogan's lawyers showed it to the jury twice. On Monday, um, the deposition was a very long day, AJ said. Yes, 100% Hogan's attorneys knew I was being sarcastic. It's not my view. Everyone knows that. Right. Uh, facing blistering cross-examination from Hogan's attorney, uh, maybe it got interesting. Uh, Mr. Blair's penis had no news val- value, right? Asked Hogan's attorney. No, responded Delario. It wasn't newsworthy, right? No. There was no news value to showing them having sex. Attorney. No, not necessarily. Delario. Uh, he says he was making a social commentary on celebrity sex videos. And uh, he also said, sometimes you can come across as callous, but that's not my job as a journalist. It's to put out something that's fair and accurate. Public figures live a different life. Uh, a couple more quotes from Delario. I was amused by it. I grew up watching Hulk Hogan and knew him as a character for most of his life. It's not a situation I ever expected him to watch him in. Um, it was, he also talked about how it was a popular story. And it got a huge spike in traffic when Hogan was on Howard Stern. And talked about this incident and his sex life in general. What so, is what is Hogan suing for? Hundred million bucks. No, no, no. But I mean, do you know he, that it's um, an invasion of privacy? I guess because he didn't know it was being recorded. But Delorio, they posted mm. it. They have to establish that it's newsworthy um, I see. or relevant because he's a public figure. And Hogan is trying to say that that was Terry Bollea, who Not isn't Hulk Hogan, who isn't. A public figure and not sure. newsworthy, 
it's kind of a convoluted case that way. Yeah. And there's probably articles you could find that explain the legal ramifications of it better than I can. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting that this major law story is going on between Hulk Hogan, an icon of our childhood, and AJ Delirio, <laughs> a two-time guest of our podcast. You see the guy I asked if uh, his site was the TMZ of sports? No, that was the guys from... Um, sports Grid? Yes. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so... That, that's, yeah, I don't know where I fall on that. I mean, it sucks to think that if we were to ever become celebrities that our sex tapes would be fair game. Right. I mean, that that is that is tough. It's not really newsworthy. Uh, I like AJ for doing our podcast, but I, I'm not sure I would fall on his side here. All right. Well, that's three things. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, let's see what we got. When we come back, Tim Kewen will join us. Uh, then we're going to do a book club. we got a new book. We're going to start. Uh, then we'll do an interview with Kevin Armstrong, and then we'll be back for one last thing. All right, our next guest is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and studied at UC Berkeley and Washington State. He cut his teeth in the newspaper business, uh, but has been writing for ESPN the magazine since 1999. Uh, he's also co-authored books with Dennis Rodman, Josh Hamilton, and Rick Harrison from Pawn Stars. Uh, he's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Tim Kewen. How's it going, Tim? Hey, good. How are you? Not bad. Did I get that, Kewen? Is that I got it right? You got it. You nailed <laughs> it. I I may or may not have asked him for a uh, help on that beforehand. Uh, Our secret. <laughs> thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. Sure. Um. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was really. We've been following the, the shows about. We debuted the night after the Cam Newton, Auburn national championship victory. So is that January 2011, I think. And we followed Cam Newton quite a bit. We 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 have a book club. We'll, we'll 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 take a book and we'll promote it and we'll talk about it with our listeners and then we'll uh we'll um we'll have the author in at the end. And and a guy that we had in was a guy by the name of Rob Mish who wrote a book called The Last Natural. Um and it was about the year that uh Bryce Harper spent at the junior college after high school. I read it. Yeah, and we we enjoyed it, and we we enjoyed Rob's out in Vegas, and um, kind of just kind of followed this kid, and uh, really enjoyed your piece. And you know, it's interesting. I was looking at your you, know, you can you can go to like a page on ESPN.com, and it's, it's basically just a list of your last 100 columns, or as far back as you're willing to click especially for a guy who's been there for so long. It's pretty fascinating. It was really interesting that in the article itself, uh, Bryce talks a little bit about fashion. And uh, he mentions how he makes some comparisons to the way Cam Newton... Uh, he talks about how Cam Newton dresses, I guess, and how he, uh, what he brings to football and how he'd like to bring 
some of that to baseball. Then I noticed that the column that you had written previous uh, to, to this Harper piece was from the Super Bowl uh, about Cam and the time he spent at junior college. Um, and I was just starting to just kind of think about a lot of similarities between Cam Newton and Bryce Harper that just never dawned on me before that. Um, and really, like, reading the uh, the two articles, because then I went and read that one right away. It's like, wow, these guys, I mean, they I guess in some ways they're, they're very different, but in other ways they're very, very much the same as well. There are very, a lot of similarities. Yeah, I think, I think there's some truth to that. I think there's a, um, the, the thing I see from both of them is that they are both uh, sort of interested in, um, in promoting their sport in sort of non-traditional ways and, and with fashion being one of them and endorsements and so forth that, they're they're uh, very very concerned and aware of how they project themselves as well, and I think that gets to the to the fashion as well. There's a there's a kind of a mentality there that is um, you know very buttoned down, very sort of you know they want to be they want to be perceived as more than athletes. They want to be you know kind of transcend their sports in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think they both they're. They have some similar ideas about how to go about it. Yeah, and I thought one interesting thing was about kind of how they're perceived by by other people, especially outside of the cities where they apply their trade. You know, and I remember the week of the leading up to the Super Bowl or the two weeks, there was a lot of talk, and you wrote about it, about uh, Cam Newton and why maybe people might dislike him or, you know, whether or not he's polarizing and I'm actually a big Saints fan, and I was talking with whoever we had on that week about it, and I said, you know, the thing for me uh, as a fan of a rival, uh, with it, kind of perceiving him as a rival, is that he's reminded me a lot of Steve Young uh, as a rival in the sense that he's really frustrating to be against because he's the kind of player that you can get near often. And you feel like often you're within a hair of containing him. And and then he gets away from you. And then he gets away from you and he beats you. And he does it again and again. And then when he beats you, he stomps on you. Um, and that's really easy to hate uh, when he's not on your side. And I think all great baseball players are like that to some degree too. Because, you know, the best baseball player of all time you still might get him out three times in a game but when he finally does get you and when he beats you uh as Bryce Harper will is going to do over and over again in his career um it's frustrating and then Bryce Harper like Cam Newton likes to stomp on you and likes to do it with flair and like you said in an untraditional way and I think that's where, if we're going to use the word polarizing for either of them, I think it's most fair, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's those are those are good points, and I think that you know one of the questions a lot of people have asked me through this whole process is that you know what do I think of him? Like, uh, what you know? did I like him, you know, and it's kind of the same question that his buddy who plays baseball at BYU says in the stories, like people say, you know, is he, do they 
you know, to be a jerk, basically. And, uh, you know, I, my, my answer is that I, I found him really enjoyable. I found him entertaining. Um, I enjoyed the time I spent with him. Uh, I found him to be bright and sharp and witty and so forth. And at the same time, I can see where there were enough glimpses into that other side. You know, there were enough glimpses into see, to be able to see, yeah, I, I completely understand why some people don't like Bryce. You know, there, there are instances where his self-confidence, you know, can be perceived as straying into arrogance. Um, you know, and it's part of the, it's part of our sort of, we kind of have a problem as a culture almost with, with confidence and that we all, you know, uniformly believe it's a very positive quality to have. And yet, displaying it as openly as someone like Bryce does is is seen as a definitely as a negative. You know, it's it's immediately seen as, you know, that, that quiet confidence is the way that we want our athletes to be. And uh you know, I think Bryce feels that that's not the way to grow the sport and it's not the way to, you know, improve his personal profile and he feels that, you know, that that it's okay to to, to basically do something spectacular and uh and appreciate it at the same time, openly. And I think baseball is almost the perfect sport for it because I think, I think over time we've had a lot of like the the sport lends itself to being intensely angry sometimes at opponents. You know, like um, the. Giants and Dodgers rivalry and the Yankees and the Red Sox rivalry and um, players over the years like A-Rod. Um, these, these things where in in the, the home city, it plays – it's your guy and, and it's, so e- it, it's so easy to embrace it. And it's fun almost to defend it because when it's not your guy, it gets so universally hated. Not just by your rival, but also by pretty much anyone else, because it can be—it's such an easy thing, like you said, in a sport like baseball to dis- to dislike. But um, it really does create intense passions for as well. Like I got to imagine in Washington, you know, they're gonna love this guy ten times more because of it. You think I'm right or wrong about that? I think you're. I think you're right on, and I think that there's a. Yeah, it's, it's very tribal with fans, and it's you know it, that's Bryce completely understands that side of it, and he gets that he can he can help baseball not only by being loved by people that root for the Nationals, but also be by being disliked by people who don't like him. You know, I mean, right. I think that's a, that that side is you know baseball is funny because it's such a if you talk to players as much as I have over the years and, and you get into the psyche of what it's what it's like to play the game, so much of baseball is based on how you deal with failure. Success in baseball is is dictated in large part by how you deal with failure. Because failure is so much a part of the game that you you know, the best hitter, the old saw about the best hitter, you know, fails seven out of ten times. And so the the whole idea, every sport preaches, you know, not too high or too low, but baseball is the only one where it's almost ingrained into every player's psyche that you have to learn how to deal with failure before you can succeed. And that aspect of it really 
lends itself to all these unwritten rules and all these these sort of re- repressive ideas about how players should act on the field right. and whether they should show their personality and their emotions because you're every time you do something great it's been ingrained in you that the next time you're going to fail you know that there's it's not going to stay so instead of in some sports that would be you would go the other direction and say i fail so much that i'm going to really enjoy the success but in baseball it's it's reversed on that and the idea is i'm not going to show up that pitcher because i know he's going to get me more than likely the next three out of four times so um you know that's that's Part of this debate that's been going back and forth is is that baseball is really dictated by failure. Yeah, and it's also dictated by these, like you mentioned and Bryce mentioned, these kind of like possibly outdated, probably outdated set of like unwritten laws about how you need to conduct yourself on the field. And, you know, I think that some of them are worse than others. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing for it to kind of be universally expected for people to hustle. You know, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad one. You know, but to be all... And neither does Bryce. Bryce would agree with you completely and and feels that, you know, there are times when he has not failed to live up to that. Right, and that's okay because they play 162 days, so there's not any player, really, even, you know, people known for hustle like Derek Jeter or something. He's... He's missed he's he's missed opportunities to hustle now and again over a career that long, you know. But I also kind of do think it's silly that we didn't totally embrace the awesome uh, Batista bat flip because even if for two hundred years flipping a bat is taboo, and while I might be able to listen to someone talk about how silly it is on a Wednesday in May. Uh, that was the perfect time for that bat flip, right? I mean, like, we need – don't – I mean, doesn't the sport and wouldn't everyone want in a moment like that just – like, that was perfect, right? Like, that's where they lose me, you know, the traditionalists or whatever. If we want right. to talk about hustle, yeah, and, I can get on board. And I, with, I, yeah. Yeah, and I, I actually was on a show last night with uh, – Steve Sachs, and we were talking about the Batista thing, and he's uh, a little more old school than than most, given you know the time that he played and and so forth. But he's not he's not completely ignorant of the fact that you know baseball players can you know should be able to that the, the game almost depends on guys showing their personality a little bit more. But uh, you know, I, I asked him about the Batista bat flip, and he said, "Well, I think it was a little too if you watch it." He hit, he hit the home run, he thought about it, and then he threw the bat. So his, his thing was that it was, he felt that even that was a little bit contrived because huh. he took a look at the pitcher, he, you know, he watched the ball, and then he threw the bat. And I'm, you know, I just, I think that if you put yourself in that position at that moment in that game where there was maybe the craziest inning in the history of baseball and you yeah. hit that ball to sort of, bring your team back and create this indelible moment. I, I just think that, that you know, yeah, it'd be fine if a guy just dropped his bat and ran around the bases, but my gosh, in that moment, that's what people wanted. I mean, people who are watching the game were doing that, you know, figuratively flipping their own yeah. bats in their living rooms. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that the, 
the, you know, Goose Goss has just gone off on every possible tangent about every possible unwritten rule that he feels is being broken by this generation of players. And I, I just think it's, I think it's tiresome after a while. And I, I, I kind of agree with Bryce. It's tired. You know, it's just something that is, is, um, it's just, a, it's just these guys coming across as, as old cranks in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, Goose is obviously the poster child for that right now. You know, and if it if it's the player too, like it di- it didn't come off as you know Batista trying to be someone he wasn't uh, to make the moment. You know, like he reacted to it like I think I would expect him to. A- he carried it well. You know, it was you know like maybe if. I don't know why Derek Jeter keeps coming to mind. Maybe if it was him, I might have been able to get with Steve Sachs a little bit more about it being contrived because you just don't expect that guy in a way. But, you know, he was just being himself, I guess is what I'm saying. It felt that way anyway. Like he was being himself, showing emotion, opening up a bit. And, um, man, I think we need that more in baseball, more than any sport right now, just because... You know, I was listening to Simmons kind of talk about this issue uh, with Chuck Klosterman, I think it was. And, you know, they were talking more about just like how how baseball is going to reach the next generation and the generation after that. And, I, I mean, I do think that some of these rules that started in the early 1900s are going to really need to, to fade a little bit if they want to uh, – I mean, baseball is always going to be in this country huge, but if they if they want to be, um, if they want to get closer to maybe where they've been in the past, I think it's really important now more than ever for some of this stuff to fade. Yeah, I think that the new you know the the problem baseball has right now, and and I would defend baseball to the end because I love it, but I think that there's a um, there is a a lessening of of um, I don't know excitement. There's it's it, it, the young young people are not as invested in baseball as they have been, and the, the numbers bear that out. The numbers of of the age and the demographics of people who who watch baseball. You know, they've done some studies. It's mid to late fifties is like sort of an average age of the of the guy that's going to sit down every night and watch a baseball game. And uh, you know, you don't you know you don't build your sport. Through that demographic, you know, you got to get into, you got to get into the high schools. You got, you know, you've got, you got people like, like Steph Curry and Cam Newton who are energizing kids, you know, and and they they're the ones who are wearing their their jerseys and and watching them every chance they get. And I think that's, you know, that's Bryce's idea is, hey, let let's <laughs> let's see what's working and and go with it. Right. Right, right. Yeah, because, I mean, if you want to reach a young generation, you need young players that are charismatic to kind of lead that. Right? I mean... Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, I think baseball's always been behind on on promoting its own personalities. And I think that that's, you know, if you think about what, you know, most people feel the NBA was, was sort of sliding toward irrelevance before Magic and Bird came in and, and, and re-energized that with their play and with their personality and their differences and their, you know, magic smile and birds, you know, sort of, you know, his 
his, I guess you'd call it quiet confidence, but it was not so quiet on the court. I mean, he was a, he was an assassin. He had, you know, he had attitude. And I think that, you know, at that point, basketball started, if you remember, when, when there was a game that, you know, when somebody was promoting a game, it started to be, you know, watch, uh, the, it wasn't so much the Suns against the Lakers as it was Barkley against Magic, or it was, uh, you know, that, that became the, that became their, what they hinged their, their popularity on, and it, right. and it definitely worked. And, and baseball, you know, baseball hasn't needed to sell its personalities that much because the game sort of coasted on its own sort of historic popularity. And, uh, you know, times are changed. Times have changed where, where, you know, kids have so many different options. You know, it's a long gone of the days when there was one baseball game on every week, you know, or two. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's more of a fast paced, you know, quick hit society and people, people are way more into celebrity culture. And that, that part of it is something that, that is, you know, that baseball, that Bryce is talking about, you know, that, that, Hey, let's be celebrities and not just baseball players and everyone wins, you know, and there are a lot of people that don't want that. There's pushback on that. And I get that too. All right. Uh, the sportscasters are here with, uh, Tim Kewen from ESPN, the magazine, and we've been talking about a piece he wrote about Bryce Harper, which you can find uh, on the internet in ESPN.com. You can just search uh, Tim, K-E-O-W-N, and Bryce Harper. It'll come up right away. And it's also, you can find it in the magazine as well, ESPN, the magazine. I believe it's in the current newsstand issue, correct, Tim? Yeah, it should be out uh, everywhere by Friday. By Friday, yeah. And um, you can also find Tim on uh, Twitter. He's at T-I-M-K-E-O-W-N-E-S-P-N. Uh, a tag of that there. And uh, before I let you go, before I run you out of here, I'm going to kind of end with this. You know, we talked about uh, the piece that you wrote about Bryce a lot, and I talked about one that you wrote about um, about Cam Newton. And I was going back, and I was looking at different stuff, and I was thinking kind of about having you on and and uh what you do for the magazine and you know you get you have a really like a pretty cool thing where it's not necessarily one beat you know you got stories on espn.com about all kinds of different things obviously you know you don't have to you're not focused on one topic you have a, a lot of different thing things to write and they're long pieces you get a chance to really go deep on on a subject and and the ESPN the magazine is a a great platform for it and the pieces jump in the magazine with the bigger paper the glossier paper and they look great on the on the 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 iPad version as well I love ESPN the magazine and SI on the iPad version I think both magazines jump uh, there but I was just wondering from you because you know we have all different kind of guests from sports media on whether it's SI or TV people or uh, and I always just like to get a sense of what you like to hunt down. Like what, what is, what makes you the most passionate? Like what things right now, you know, when you're looking ahead at the sports calendar, like what are the things that you're really interested in right now and in like seeing playing out, whether it's because you might want to spend, spend the time necessary to write about it or whether it's because you want to see how it might affect something else. Like how do you view sports from today looking out whether it's are you focused on ncaa tournament do you have a broader view just like kind of from where you sit for what you do 
how how does how do you see it from here? What are you looking at? Well, Steve, I think one thing that I do is you, you kind of touched on it is I have, you know, it's it's a fantastic job. I mean, could yeah. ask for anything better, and it, and it allows me, um, you know, to 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 promote or to propose stories that might be, um, you know, everyone's very open. We've got really smart people that I work with, and and there's the ideas are always great. Um, one one thing that not being tied to a beat or anything, one of the benefits, there are many benefits, but, but, you know, I can sort of take a broad view. I can look at the entire sports landscape. Um, and, you know, uh, oftentimes we have to do stuff on, on big name guys like Cam and Bryce. But, you know, I like to, the, the, the perfect story for me is to go where nobody else is. You know, I, I want, I want to find those stories and whether it's, you know, last year I did a profile of, of Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, because he's always fascinated me, and he's just such a, you know, kind of an odd duck in that world. And uh, you know, I'm I'm looking like right now I don't I don't focus so much on the NCAA tournament. I'll watch it, but I won't. It's not something that I'm going to be working on because right. it's it's a little too you know short term, immediate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm looking, I, I'm, I look at different trends. Like I think, for instance, in baseball, it gets to the whole youth thing in baseball as well. I think that they're doing that. I think baseball's done a very poor job of, of, um, the, the youth baseball stuff is, is a real, I have four sons that all went through different, you know, played at different levels. And there are, the, the way that youth baseball has, has gone to this travel ball model and, um, and showcases, I think, is really limiting um, the number of people who can participate. Hmm. Uh, it's become a, a wealthy suburban, mostly white sport, and I feel that there's there's a some. I think the roots are dying a little bit at that level because it's becoming this homogenous world of wealthy people that can afford to spend five grand in a summer having their kids travel all over the country, playing yeah, in front of scouts, like that. trying to get college mm-hmm. scholarships. And so I'm, I'm exploring the idea of, of doing a story that's that sort of gets at um, gets at that that might uh, you know without going too far into it. There's probably going to be a major league player who's going to be the, the face of that that I'm going to tell the story through him. Wow. Um, so that that's something that I'm you know that I'm really passionate about because I've, I'm passionate about baseball and I'm, I'm passionate about you know the, what the benefits of kids playing it and I feel that you know that major league baseball has really missed out on on exploring that level and what their diversity goals are, um, are, are never going to be met unless that model at that level is, is altered in some way. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. That's a, that, that's, I, wow. I can't wait for that because, you know, I was thinking watching the Duke lacrosse documentary, you know, when they were talking about, it. I was thinking about a little bit more about who plays the sports in general. You know, I grew up in a hockey family, and uh, hockey is very much like you were describing in baseball, you know, to some degree. Right. Uh, not just – it's a huge financial commitment, and there's a huge time commitment too. You know, you could never yeah. – like it's an amazing thing about football. It's so much based on genetics. You know, we have football players in the NFL that didn't even start – like Jimmy Graham, went, like, his first football game was like his junior year of high school, if even that early. You can never do that right. in hockey. You know, you could never maybe maybe you could pull that off in baseball. I don't know, but it sounds like like you're I don't saying think it's harder. Could. I think harder, maybe yeah. in baseball somebody could be you know. You have to be probably be pitcher, Bo Jackson, not yeah, a pitcher. Yeah. But yeah. Bo Jackson played baseball his whole life, and, right? 
it's such a it's such a difficult game to pick up in terms of just the the nuances of it. You know, I think that the, it would be really difficult. It's it's less sort of athletically motivated. You know, um, yeah, yeah, and that's that's part of it. But yeah, I've, I've heard some horror stories about youth hockey as well. I think yeah, that, and it's you know what it does is it it it, it always it necessitates more parental involvement because of the investment that they have to make. Yes. And it creates, it creates issues through that as well, because then there's, you know, they've got skin in the game where, you know, when I was a kid riding my bike to my little league games, you know, my parents would go watch me, but it wasn't like it was running their life. And now in take the baseball example with the, the summer travel teams, it becomes the family's, social circle as well, you know, and they oh, yeah. have so much invested in it that, you know, if your kid turns out to not be that good or a coach doesn't, the coach brings somebody else in who's better, it creates this intense sort of, you know, issues within families and, and uh, you know, it, you, you hear people say, you know, I didn't spend five grand for my kid to sit on the bench, you know, and it, 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 I think it creates a lot of sports right now. I think there's more college football coaches will even tell you that recruiting the kids is different because the parents are are more involved in it and invested in it. Um, so yeah, I mean I think there's there's a lot there's a lot changing out there in this through this stuff and I and I don't know if it's really being examined and investigated the way that, that it could be. Yeah, I mean it's maybe it happened a little bit with basketball with AAU and the yeah, emerged to that, and you talked about parents being involved in recruiting, and you wrote about it really interestingly in your Cam uh, Newton piece as well with the junior college. I was fascinated by that part of it, but you know, like just real quick, and I'll let you go about the hockey part of it. You know, growing up in a hockey family, I was the first one in my family to play hockey, and I was 11 years older than my youngest brother. And like just to see now, my youngest brother was by far the best. You know, he played D1 at Yale. And I never got close to that, you know, and my brother below didn't get close to that either. Um, but to see, like, it's not that our parents weren't as committed to me or my brother, my other brother, but when we saw as a family how talented my younger brother was, kind of all of us bought into committing to that. And my my brother that played will say, you know, I would have never been able to I mean, we live in Buffalo, and he played one whole year where his his main team was based out of Rochester, you know. And a lot of people outside would think that's silly, but we committed to that as a family, and we enjoyed it, and it helped him. And since everyone kind of had bought in, but if any one of us, like I give me and my me and my brother that did, weren't the stars, uh, we give ourselves a lot of credit for this. It's like, man, if we would have been just a little different. Uh, a little bit jealous or put a little bit of pushback, you know, that might have, everything would have maybe changed a little differently. And we're proud of ourselves for not being that way. Cause my youngest brother uh, lived a dream and we got to live it through him. You know, we, we all were in Pittsburgh when him and his Ivy league teammates won a national championship in a college hockey in 2013, which I still can't believe it happened. That's very cool. Yeah. But all right. Uh, Tim is at Tim K E O W. And ESPN, um, he is uh, in ESPN the magazine. You can read him there, of course, and on ESPN.com. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug, or maybe say it better than I did in terms of where people can find your work or anything like that? No, you know, I just think 
just another plug for ESPN the magazine. We're, yeah. we're out here doing some pretty cool stuff. I think that uh, our stories are are more in depth, and we're getting better every week. So pick it up, buy it, yeah, and subscribe, it's, all it, that stuff. It's <laughs> awesome in iPad too. If you haven't, if you're like, ah, I'm not a big big magazine guy anymore, you know, whatever for whatever reason, uh, it looks awesome in iPad. And and subscribing to it in iPad also gives you access to the articles on ESPN.com that are behind the paywall. Uh, so you get both of those things and the magazine and the mouse. So you can't beat the value there. Uh, I've already kept Tim longer than I asked, and I apologize for that, but I really did enjoy it. Thanks for making your first debut on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, I want to thank uh, Tim Kewen for being on the podcast. The worst thing about having someone's name that you're just learning is you have to remember to say it right, not just that five minutes you're talking to them. <laughs> rest of the day. Kewen. And you, you think of it a certain way. It's like uh, I think I finally figured out I've got two plugs I plug into my laptop every time I get here, and I always think I remember it a certain way, and then it's wrong, but I think I finally figured it out. And that's, It was like that with uh, – who was it? Levy, who was like Mario yeah, Levy. Call him. Levy, right? Yeah, and then with Tass, we start to learn his name. It's Ass the T, right? That was his suggestion. His I suggestion, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, book club. So last week we had John Wertheim on. You listen to John Wertheim? I have not yet. Another great appearance. Uh, we finished up his book. This is your brain on sports, the science of underdogs, value of rivalry, and what we can learn from. Oh the no, team. I lied. I did listen to him. Yeah, and yeah we, he was good. He's yeah. he's so conversational. I like. All those SI guys are so good. And we were right. It was essentially a score casting sequel. Yeah, he said you're on to me, Bennett. Yep. Was his so I had him. Uh, <laughs> so this week we need a new book, and we will be doing The Arm by Jeff Passan which, next month, so soon. And we've been waiting for that one for a long time. But in the meantime, we have Boys Among Men, how the prep to pro generation redefined the NBA and sparked a basketball revolution by... Jonathan Abrams, who is a former New York Times writer who then went to Grantland um, and was actually on the Bill Simmons uh, podcast promoting this book. So I told him, I said, you still want to do it? Because, I mean, (laughs) you are on Simmons. I'm not really sure we can help you beyond that. But, uh, no, the book is, you know, about kids going from high school to the NBA like Kobe Bryant, and it's a good year to put it out. Obviously, with it being Kobe's last year. And for every Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and Kevin Garnett, that were huge successes. Obviously, there were some big-time busts in there as well. Uh, guys who probably could have benefited from a little bit of college. A little bit of college. So it'll be interesting to read uh, about this. I haven't got the book yet. Uh, we are getting two, so we'll have one to give away. And uh, we will talk to Jonathan about it in a few weeks before we start the arm. By Jeff Passan. Uh, so that is where the book club stands. Thanks to John Wertheim and Sam Summers uh, for letting us feature their book. And thanks to Jonathan for uh, doing it. And again, the book is called Boys Among Men, How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and Sparked the Basketball Revolution. And you can buy it on Amazon.com, of course. Uh, it's in hardcover. You can get it for seventeen oh seven. don't know where they come up with that. <laughs> There's already eight used copies you can purchase. It came out like Wednesday, Tuesday. It's amazing. Uh, and you can get it on Kindle, of course, and uh, iBooks. All right. We'll be right back with Kevin Armstrong. 
And they help win it to Boston College. Galanos, in he goes! All right, our next guest lives in New York City and is a graduate of Boston College. He spent three years at Sports Illustrated before spending the last six as a staff writer for the New York Daily News. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Kevin Armstrong. How you doing, Kevin? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. You must be impressed. I mean, I nailed that intro. Uh, I didn't have to do any editing after the fact. I didn't screw it up the first time, so... Um, you're already probably thinking you're on an A plus uh, A plus show here, so I'm pretty fired up to get the interview going. Anytime for Boston is playing, it's a good time. You know? <laughs> Are you a BC hockey fan at all? Uh yeah, definitely keep track of the Eagles. Uh, it's the lone bright spot right now for the athletics program. And, uh, it was fun uh, seeing them when I was an uh, uh, undergrad, and it's uh, I've seen that a lot more success in the years. Yeah, I was uh, reading a piece in the Boston Globe about um, the other sports, football and basketball. And obviously basketball had a really rough year. And I was reading about that and about how they uh, uh, haven't done so well on football. And the article did kind of touch about how then, you know, but outside of that, it's maybe the model college hockey program. I mean, it's one of the best college hockey programs in the country. Uh, Jerry York has taken it to another level, despite being a premier program for many years before that. So uh, we talk college hockey now and again on here. So I love I love uh, having the chance to play a BC goal. So and that was uh, that was an overtime winner in the national championship game. Uh, Jerry York's first championship uh, and Brian Gianta, who's now a Saber and is from uh, Rochester in Western New York, uh, was on that team as a senior uh, and broke through. So. Kevin. Gianta family has been very good to these Yes, yes, they have. Yes, they have. Yeah, Gianta went there kind of as a package with uh, Jeff Farkas, uh, whose dad owns a place called Great Skate in Buffalo. And um, Jeff Farkas was in the NHL at that point. Um, his senior year was the year before. Um, and they had, they played, I think Gianta played in three um national championship games or frozen fours and uh Farkas played in almost as many and um but didn't get a ring there and then ended up debuting in the playoffs and scoring his first NHL goal in the playoffs for the Leafs and no one else did that in hockey until Chris Chris Kreider did it for the Rangers also from BC so useless stuff that nobody needs to hear from me right now because we want to talk to Kevin um, and Kevin wrote a really cool piece in the Daily News. And and Kevin, I, I don't know this, unfortunately. I, I couldn't figure it out. Did it only run online or did it run in the paper as well? I wasn't sure. Yeah, it ran in both. Yep, it ran yeah, in definitely both. in the paper too. It really had a news, uh, a magazine back of SI feature kind of feel to it. And I loved the idea of like grabbing the Daily News on my on my way to work in the city and, and being able to sit down and lunch and and kind of really dig into a piece like that. I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I guess as a question, because uh, that's not a question, that was a statement, uh, did writing it, uh, do you like being able to to write when you get to go feature length? Because you don't, 
you don't necessarily always think of uh, newspaper stories for that way. But do you like when you get a chance to spread your legs and do more of a feature, something that sprawls out a bit in the pages of the paper? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I absolutely uh, love stretching the legs. And, uh, you know, the, the Daily News does afford me, uh, you know, quite a few opportunities over the years in terms of, uh, you know, these three, 4,000 words, 6,000 word features that uh, kind of explore not only city life, but, uh, you know, whatever's kind of going on in uh, sports at the time. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky in that sense. Not every uh, newspaper allows that nowadays, but uh, the Daily News has... Um, it really opened up its pages at times for me, and uh, you know, I just try to report as much as I can. So uh, I'm really filling those pages with uh, you know quality stuff. Yeah, and the pieces of it's it's really interesting because it's about for those who didn't read it, and I'm going to link to it. I already have on Twitter. You can you can find a link to the piece. It's kind of about the unique gyms uh, across Brooklyn because Brooklyn is hosting the NCAA tournament this year at Barclays. Uh, one of the venues, obviously, hosting the tournament. Um, and it was a really interesting take on just kind of the the evolution of, of gyms in Brooklyn and some of the unique parts of different gyms. And it, it really got me to thinking about different hockey rinks that I've played in or my brothers have played in over the years and some of the different advantages. And I was just thinking of like, some of these places, just the re- I really enjoyed thinking about the cool home court advantages that have come, uh, and maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about a few of the ones you talked about in the piece. Just the kind of unique, non-sterile basketball gyms that exist across Brooklyn, and 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 the little quirky, cool things about them. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I came across, I, I played CYO basketball in, the, in high school, nowhere near the level that, uh, you know, these guys in like the NCAA tournament are uh, playing, but, uh, you always remember kind of the, um, the CYO gyms in particular, you'd get like the opposite foul line was the backcourt violation because the, the courts were so compressed and uh, half court, you know, the 10 second rule really didn't make sense to be enforced in, uh, you know, that kind of space. And, um, the more I, I spent a little time in, uh, some of these high school gyms over the years, uh, and Brooklyn, uh, you know, we knew the tournament was coming and I just thought that, you know, uh, the uniqueness of the Paramount theater being converted into a basketball court on, um, Flatbush Avenue, uh, it was, was fascinating to me. You know, you've got these Rococo-style ceilings, you've got organs, you've got, um, you know, these old uh, fountains that used to actually spew water indoors and everything. And I was like, this is, you know, a basketball court now. And not only is it defunct as a theater, but it was defunct as a uh, Division One facility. It was essentially just uh, students uh, who wanted to play pickup in between classes could just, you know, come onto this court and just shoot around. And uh, so I, I thought about that, and then I was like, you know, maybe we do a top 10 gyms of Brooklyn. And I started asking around people in the basketball community, and some I knew, like uh, Abraham Lincoln High School in Coney Island, Bishop Lachlan in um, Fort Greene. They've had guys like Mark Jackson come out of there. And uh, I just kept on coming across these places that included, you know, like, 
a recent uh, court in the basement of a housing project that has the district attorney's logo on it and a special narcotics office because the court was uh, refurbished because of the yeah, funds uh, that was amazing. from drug dealers. Yeah, it's amazing. And I've seen, you know, I don't know how many gyms and hardwood courts over the years, and nowhere had I ever seen that. I started, you know, I was like, do I have a blind spot for this? And I asked people, you know, who are in gyms all the time, and they're like, that's just unique. You know? right. <laughs> there may be, you know, contributions from police departments and PAL leagues and stuff, but, um, you know, for a logo to be on there, they're really, you know, stamping uh, the hardwood with uh, kind of reminding the kids exactly where that money came from. So, uh, you know, just kind of kept on coming across these places. I was taking the subway, walking, you know, whatever it took to get to these places. And uh, each one was unique. And I was like, you know, there's, there's a narrative to be done here in terms of uh, stringing all these things together. Yeah, and it was really interesting. I was thinking about, I mean, I look at it. I'm from Buffalo. I've been to New York City, I don't know, 20 times in my life or whatever, plenty. Uh, I've been around Brooklyn here and there, but. I don't understand the evolution of it as much as someone from there. And it was really interesting in the article, you know, someone talking about how, you know, Barclays is, is kind of downtown and like a spaceship has landed in there. Actually, Michael Woods is like a boxing guy we talked to now and again when there's a big fight and he lives right by there. And he kind of said the same thing that like Barclays looks like a spaceship just kind of landed in this neighborhood. And now, you know, as the guy said in your piece, it's you can't even get a parking spot for 500 bucks down there or whatever. But there's still this, right. but there's still this kind of innocence or old school nature to all these gyms that you talked about, and it was a really interesting contrast in the piece. And you talked about the uh, the police one already, and also like you had an anecdote in there about a church and a guy who stood up and said, "Name all these NBA basketball players that came from this area," and then he's like, "Well, now name them the ones that have come back and built a gym." He's like, well, you can't name as many, but this church did that, you know. And it, it's a really interesting way that the community has reached out. And you talked about to go a step further too about how it's a risk sometimes because there is kind of a a win lose sometimes with these gyms. Sure, you know, basketball in the inner city is a uh, you know it's a popular game. Uh, it's not the most popular. It's the easiest in terms of the playgrounds. You know, the schoolyards uh, literally you just have the rims out there and. All you need is a ball, and you know you can play one on one, two on two, five on five, whatever you want. Um, but the unique—I I thought that there was such a fixation over the years um, when I thought about this that there, you know, uh, he got game um, by Spike Lee showed Lincoln High in Coney Island. That's where Jesus Shuttlesworth, the main character, was playing basketball, and that's unique. It has the bank track and. Um, but, you know, like when I went to a game there a few weeks ago, I had forgotten, I'd been there years before with Lance Stevenson and some of these guys coming up, that no fans can sit in the front row because the bleachers come out to the baseline. So everybody has to sit in the second row. And then Lincoln, you know, sits on folding chairs, and uh, the other team has to sit in the stands with uh, fans' knees at right. their Right, yeah, I'll talk about intimidating. And, you know, it's just yeah. like these little things. And I love that. I, I think a lot of that gets lost in the sanitization of, uh, you know, uh, these Jerry Worlds and, uh, you know, these great big Barclays Center. Um, I love the gamesmanship that comes, you know, with pageantry in some of these places. 
And, you know, I, I really thought that the piece could kind of celebrate that, whereas all these people are going to talk about Barclays this week. You know, that's not what molded the Russell Smith from Louisville and, you know, Lorenzo Charles back in the day with NC State. These guys came out of these places where, you know, they would have done anything for more space, but they thrived in those situations nonetheless. Yeah, and he talks about Chris Mullen in one of the gyms. I mean, he had a key to it. You know, he would go in and, and apply his trade there and uh, you know, him being back. I mean, I always think of uh, my fr- Mike Francesa is uh, talking about how, you know, New York City is the Mecca. You know, he says that the Mecca, you know, of basketball. Right, right. You know, and you, you, can, you can forget about how deep that runs until you read a piece like this. You know, and then it's like a hundred years of examples or whatever of players from – neighborhoods and these unique gyms and you know that get themselves and you talked about the coaches and I was interested in this and maybe you can talk a little bit more about how the coaches talk about how how much it prides them to try to be the coach of one of those guys and how lucky they can end up feeling when they get a guy that way I think the one coach was quoted in the piece is saying you know you're you know you're one of the lucky ones when you get a guy who gets to that level No doubt. And this year, you know, the lottery ticket goes to uh, Lawrence Pollard, the coach at Thomas Jefferson. You know, he's got kids coming from Brownsville and East New York, which is really the toughest. You know, when you hear about all the stuff about, you know, gentrified Brooklyn and all this, you know, beautiful uh, uh, buildings going up downtown and whatnot, uh, you know, just, just remember that Lawrence Pollard's out there in Jefferson High and uh, he has a brand new court and everything, but he's in a rough neighborhood, and he's got the city's best player this year, Shamari Pons. They just won the city title last weekend, and um, you know he, he recognizes that you know there it could be far worse uh, than what he's got. But you know, there's kids literally climbing on top of a short roof, and uh, you know grabbing onto the gates to look in and see his game because they can't get in. It's such a small, you know, uh, gym, right. but the kid, you know, stand on the roof in like 30 degree weather. And, uh, there's a murder being investigated right around the corner that happened within an hour. And these kids just cannot get enough of city basketball that they want to watch stand and watch that game through the window. And didn't you say that that's kind of like been a tradition there sort of too, that, that, that's not the first time people have got up on that roof to watch games through that window? Yeah, you know, he traces it back about, say, 10 years ago. But, you know, that particular, you know, roof and everything, that might be true. But I bet that, you know, that's the, that's the image of Rucker Park, you know, that you see people, you know, right. like sitting up in the trees because yeah. they can't, you know, fit in the stands in the summertime and, you know, climbing the fences you know, th- this is a uh, this is a magnetism to basketball in those communities that uh, really uh, comes to uh, be celebrated at this time of year. You know, when they're playing for city championships. So, yeah, I-, I wanted to reflect the the winter game, whereas everybody focuses on summer and you know the different tournaments that are played in the different parks. Um, you know, I-, I thought it was a good time to point out that. It's just as crazy the obsession with the game, uh, you know, at this time of year. Yeah, when I was reading about that, I was thinking about. Um, I remember reading about how when Jason Kidd was in high school, 
um, it was such an attraction that they had to move uh, the team move their games out of that gym to that to play like in, in bigger places. Is that something that will happen in Brooklyn? Do you know about a prospect uh, that will get together and these gyms just can't accommodate the attraction or do teams fight that off because playing in the gym is such an advantage for them? Yeah, it's a good question. You, I, I think they are fighting it off. And, uh, you know, Barclays did hold the PSAL championship one year and they have not done it in the year since which is somewhat surprising you would think that Barclays would be more interested in um, you know really winning over the locals right. uh, in terms of you know giving them the space for that kind of thing now the PSL championships are back in the garden last week and that's even after um, you know there are two Brooklyn teams in the championship uh, Lincoln and Jefferson so uh, that's I would have thought that Barclays would have made a bigger play just to really, you know, establish the grassroots uh, community uh, coming through their place. But, uh, you know, I do think it is part of the uh, system is that, you know, a lot of these places, this isn't like LeBron when he was coming up. Uh, you know, you have your showcase games at a Fordham or a, a St. John's and whatnot. But uh, a lot of these high schools, uh, you know, if you can't make it, then, you know, you just <laughs> need to come to the next game. You know, they, they know uh, supply and demand, right. and uh, they, they know that they're going to be on the winning side of that uh, equation. Yeah. Now, are you going to go to Barclays at all for the tournament? Like, what's – what for, – for, uh, let me back. Uh, that's a silly way to put it. Let me ask you this. What – you did a great job of putting into perspective the buzz and the atmosphere for all these games in these gyms. Comparatively, what's the buzz and atmosphere in the city and in Brooklyn, um, maybe specifically, uh, for the NCAA tournament being in Barclays this weekend? Because uh, events sure, often I, get eaten up in New York City, you know, but is this something that in that area is, is ringing out more than other events? Or Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, two years ago, the regional, uh, the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, at Madison Square Garden, mm -hmm. and uh, that was the first time in years that uh, the tournament had come back to New York. Uh, really, the last time previously, closest would have been 1996 when uh, Kentucky won the national title against Syracuse at the Meadowlands. And um, in terms of this time, uh, you know, the Garden did well, and I, I saw Michigan State-Virginia as the Elite Eight matchup, I believe, and uh, the Garden was uh, buzzing. You know, one of the, I've been to, you know, a hundred games in there and it was one of the best atmospheres. And I think Brooklyn will have good games this week. It's got UNC, Notre Dame, West Virginia. You know, there are some, uh, talented groups. So I think that there will be a, a pretty good turnout. Um, the one thing that has gone against it is that it's the opening weekend games. Right. You know, this isn't, you know, the final four berth isn't on the table, um, at this stage so which i wouldn't be surprised if you know brooklyn becomes a regional site down the line it just isn't this year you know right well you know it's so interesting that's the one thing about the ncaa tournament for as popular as it is that doesn't necessarily mean that every building they hold it in is a sellout you know it's like it's weird how some venues like when every time they have it here in buffalo at our arena it's always first round second round 
or I guess that's not even the right way because it's the second round, third round, whatever. Uh, whenever it comes here, it sells out. It kills. It's a there's a buzz for it. People love having it here, and that's probably because there's not a lot of bat. Like there's not much big time basketball played in Buffalo, obviously. Um, so to have it at that level here, I think people people love that in a weekend every few years kind of a thing. But then you'll see some areas you'll watch. You'll turn in at two o'clock. And it's like half empty arena in Oklahoma City or something, you know. Maybe that's a bad example. Maybe they sell out. I'm not sh- sure, you know, uh, the opposite of it, which specific place it is. So I don't mean to throw anyone under the bus. I don't want any emails from my friends in Oklahoma City, and I'm sure we have thousands. But uh, but um, you know, that's an interesting thing about the tournament. Sometimes you never know in the beginning what what buildings are going to really pop. Yeah, and I think that's something that you know that tournament just goes through those exercises and trying yeah. to, you know, figure out what is going to be. And I, I think they'll learn that Brooklyn will appreciate it. Brooklyn will definitely want to be there. Uh, Lawrence Pollard, the Jefferson coach, he said, you know, he wouldn't miss it um, for actually uh, getting to the game. So uh, you're going to see a lot. Of, it's kind of funny if you do some crowd watching it, if anybody does go there, uh, just look around and, you know, there'll be a lot of history in the stands, some old Brooklyn players at the, you know, I'm sure there, there'll be a great vibe just to uh, the history meeting the present. You know, a lot of Brooklyn people never imagined that the uh, tournament would actually come there because they didn't have an arena that could, you know, really attract the NCAA's attention. But uh, now that Barclays came, and uh, you know, that's the good part is, you know, even with all these band boxes, the NCAA wasn't going to come and play in the band box. Right. You know, it, took the bright, <laughs> right. it took the bright, shiny toys to uh, get them there. Yeah. That'd be that'd be something spectacular though to see like uh, UNC like with fans knees against their backs and that and that <laughs> on the bench over there. That'd be that'd be something. Right. Uh, <laughs> the Swartzcasters finishing up here with Kevin Armstrong from the New York Daily News. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Kevin G Armstrong. Uh, you can find him there, and of course you can read him uh in the pages of the New York Daily News uh and on New York uh is it newyorkdailynews.com is that the right address You got it yep uh, you can see him there and I got to ask you one last thing uh let's put a bow on it, on this because I'm just curious to get your opinion because I don't get to talk to that many New York Daily News uh writers that often uh I kind of I follow this I don't know even what the ad is but I follow this account on Twitter which is completely like devoted to to, to tweeting out pictures of the front and back pages of the New York City newspapers, uh, you know, the, the Daily News, the Post. Uh, and I think they maybe do some other newspapers too. or um, And maybe it's, you know, and, and these covers are so, sometimes so cool, sometimes so risky, sometimes bold, sometimes cringeworthy, sometimes perfect, all these different things. But it seems like the newspaper business has really decided to, to go out there, put themselves out there, and to risk it with these covers every day, and obviously in what is a competitive time for newspapers. And I was just curious what your opinion was and what you think about uh, the cover and the back page and kind of how they have uh, changed or stayed the same or evolved in your time at the New York Daily News and what your thoughts were on it. Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm a lifelong New Yorker aside from going to college in Boston. uh, You know, I've been here... I'm 32, so you know I've uh, you know seen the full generation, uh, let's say, of newspaper coverage and everything. And 
you know, it's always been uh, edgy in terms of the news and the post. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, you know, they want to put out a front and a back page that are um, representative of, uh, A, the editorial feel to the paper, and B, uh, that's going to attract the uh, strap hangers and, you know, all the uh, commuters and everybody who's picking up, uh, deciding which paper to pick up, you know, when they come through Penn Station or Grand Central or, you know, whichever stop they have on the subway. So I, I think it's always, it's an interesting uh, study in terms of, you know, which uh, paper wins each day in terms of which is, uh, you know, true to itself is, uh, I think, the most important thing. Uh, you know, you can reach with those pages, but you can also, uh, I, I think, accurately capture uh, the, the feeling of the city at that time, let alone the nation. Um, I know right now there's a lot of political ones, but, you know, in terms of sports, um, <laughs> there are crazy ones. Uh, there are ones that you love over the years, and, uh, you know, there are great uh, editorial minds behind them. But uh, I always think, uh, you know, I think people have to take it with a grain of salt in terms of, um, you know, the tone of them and uh, just understand, you know, that, that's trying to capture the attention uh, when you read those. Right. Yeah, the, the, the political ones are, I'm assuming, only going to get more interesting and provocative as we get closer and closer to the election. I'm excited for that. Uh, again, one more time, you can find Kevin. Uh, he's on Twitter. He's at Kevin G. Armstrong there. You can find his piece on uh, the gyms. I link to it on my Twitter, uh, and I will do that again as well. And you can find it on it's nydailynews.com and uh, in the pages of the physical edition of the New York Daily News if you happen to, as he said, walk by one in Penn Station or wherever papers are sold. Kevin, thank you so much for uh, for doing this and being on the show. My pleasure. Good yeah. luck with everything. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy the tournament. Oh, do you have a you want, you want to give a final four prediction before you go? Yeah, um, I don't know about the four, but uh, I think Kansas is going to win it. Okay. Kansas is going to win the title, and um, okay. I, I would uh, expect Michigan State to be meeting them uh, along the way somewhere. Well, that sounds good. I'll take. I sign up for that. That sounds like fun. So. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Kevin. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Kevin Armstrong from the New York Daily News for making his first appearance on the podcast. And, of course, I want to thank uh, Tim Kewen as well for being on the show. Don't forget, you can find this week's show, uh, last week's show with John Wertheim and Ed Sherman, and all of our shows on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters. Look for Don at Don Lake Sports, And you can email us anytime the sportscasters at gmail.com. All right. My last thing this week is short and simple. Um, maybe somewhat un-American, but I cannot wait until this election is over. You and me both. Uh, Facebook is a brutal Nightmare. place. Uh, both sides of it. Awful. Both. And, and the worst, my pet peeve is people talking at you like they're smarter than you. And it's a lot of people yelling, like preaching to the converted. You know what I mean? Like, uh, my liberal friends are getting likes from the liberal friends and the Republican friends or the conservative or Trump friends are getting likes from the Trump friends. And it's obnoxious. I'd rather 
look at pictures of their dinner and cats or whatever Facebook used to be, but it's brutal. Uh, this feels like the most exciting election ever, but I wonder if that's just because... Except for there's no winning. Well, right. I mean, honestly, that's the biggest thing is like, it's going to be Trump versus Clinton, right? Right. It sure seems like it, yeah. Do you really want either of those people to be president, truly? I Like, if you made a list of the top 100 options, would either of those be in the top 10? No. 20? 50? No, probably not. Um but yeah, and the biggest problem I always have with this is I think the day after the election, like the presidential election is over, you should hope that that president is the greatest president yeah. of all time. And people don't. No. And it, that hatred is just so clear on social media now. And it's a newer thing. Yeah, and Maybe I think around it's a social Clinton, media. It started. It, it's largely a social media thing, probably. You have access to these opinions, and you can state your opinion. 24-hour news cycles. Yeah, all that. It, it's the worst. Uh, it's kind of disgusting, and like friends and stuff are fighting and like it's, it's just ugly. I can't wait for it to be over. And you know, it's Bring like, the cat picks. If when you look at a top 10 nonpartisan best president ever list, it's pretty much a split. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Republicans like, and Democrats. If, if a non, sure. Whatever nonpartisan historians get together to rank presidents. Right. The top ten usually has Republican names like Ronald Reagan, Dwight Eisenhower, Abraham Lincoln, uh, and it has Democratic names like Franklin Roosevelt and uh, Whig Party names. Sure. Which I mean, where does like George Washington? Where does that fit? I'm not really sure. Uh, but I mean, in I've- the end, we've probably had as many good Democrat presidents as we have had Republican, and as many bad. Right. Democrat presidents that we had Republican. And people treat it... Just, you got to give the guy a chance, whoever it is, or gal. Right. Sports in the grand scheme of things are not that important. I mean, they're important to us, and there's fans, but I think people treat politics like they treat sports, and I, I think that's totally the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, if, and when it's a year when the candidates are as polarizing as they are? Yep. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Brings out the most vocal like nut jobs. All right. So one last thing for me today. I find myself pondering with myself, thinking to myself, (laughs) where do I go from here with Yale Hockey? Okay. What do I want my relationship with Yale Hockey to be? Because obviously, uh, the four years that my brother was there, I I grew a great passion uh, for the team and for them winning the games. I I was very much invested. And going into this season, I wasn't sure what would happen. And what happened was I stayed subscribed to the Ivy League Digital Network so I could watch the games. And I found links to road games if need be. And I watched the TV games. And I followed the season. And I texted with John Hayden and tweeted the guys when they did well and argued on Twitter and trolled Quinnipiac and Harvard fans and was very much all in. But it's tricky because if I get mad at the Saints, I can MF the Saints. Yeah. I will do it with the best of them. Uh, and nobody is as critical of the Saints as I am. But, yeah, hockey is different. It's hard to be critical because they're kids. I, they're kids. They're, they're not getting paid. I know them. Sure. You know, I don't want to say anything bad about them, really. You know, but 
when they lost in overtime on Friday in game one of their ECAC quarterfinal matchup against Dartmouth, I threw my laptop. And when Alex Lyon let in two goals in the first five shots on Saturday and they lost two to one to get swept, I was mad. He's like the man there too, right? Yeah, you know, that's see, and that's part of it. It's like I think he's a little overrated, if I'm being completely honest. Okay, you actually d- differed with your brother. On yes, this one, right? my brother yeah. is very st- – listen, my brother is very much n- never going to throw any of these guys under sure, the bus right, at all. Yeah. These are his brothers, so it's even different different for him. Uh, but, you know, I just don't know what I want to be, who I want to be with this team. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Are, you. are you a fan for life? Like is that always is that I your... always love Yale hockey, of course. Okay, and they'll always be the team that I hope wins the national championship in college hockey. Because your your stepfather is all in. It seems like no, kind of, no, no, he's faking it. Is, oh, yeah. He's faking it for social media. Okay, his he, social media is all I mean, over. He hasn't watched more than three games all year. Oh, okay. I mean, I've seen every game. Just I've, if gotcha. I miss three, it's a lot. Uh, no, he's. Uh, Would it be different if you went to the school too? No, nah. no. No, yeah, I mean, I still like Fredonia hockey a lot. Sure. You know? Well, I'm thinking of your buddy that played at Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Like, he is now a diehard Oklahoma guy. Doesn't matter that he's been out of the school for whatever, 10 years or whatever. Yeah, I think, like, it's not being a fan that I question. Okay. It's like, what kind of fan do I want to be? Do I want to be a fan like I am with my other teams, where when they play bad, I'm mad? and critical and have opinions or do I want to be a really big time Homer? Yeah. Um, will it change when I don't know the players when they're faceless? It's two things for me. It's one. It was that I think you'll be more critical when you don't know anybody or maybe when the coach retires, something like that. And the other thing is when the saints won the super bowl, you said something like, I'm not going to bitch for five years or something, something like, I can't remember what the statement was, but it was obviously, excitement based like i can't complain I, we got one now uh there, there's still that glow i would guess a little bit from your brother's championship year so yeah i mean the seniors on the team this year were freshmen that year so i mean sure. they haven't even cycled out of right. champions on the team yet yep um but again it's not even about that i don't think you know what i mean like or do i want it to be like how important is them winning to me like you said you threw your laptops. So that's something. I was pissed when yeah. they lost overtime game because, look, at they had a bye, right? And they played this team who had played a best of three to three the week before with two overtime games. And by the end of the first game and into overtime, that team was done. And they literally went 13 minutes without possession in the offensive zone. And they got possession in the offensive zone. And they took one wrist shot that, in my opinion, should have been saved. Okay. You know, and it's like, but now if that was Brandon Browner getting beat over the top in a fourth quarter play when he's got to be the deepest of the deep, I'm going to go nuts on Brandon Browner with no problem. But I don't want to go nuts on Alex Lyon for missing that shot, I don't think. Right. You know, or wouldn't want to blame the winger for not getting down on the shot or... Uh, the defender for losing his man in front or something. You know, I, I just – I don't think I want that. But I do want to be a passionate fan. 
but I don't know. It's it's conflicting. So I guess I'll just see. Yell has a ninety eight point eight percent chance to make the NCAA tournament in an at large bid. Uh, they had a fourteen percent chance to make it last year and did. Uh, so you got to feel pretty good about the ninety eight percent chance. Uh, and when the game is played, when they're seated in a bracket, I will certainly be rooting for them to win the national championship. But how will it change in the future? I'm not really sure.